0: Hello and welcome to Bottled Up. Uh, Welcome to the second installment of season two. So we are well and truly live. Uh, My name is Sunny. I'm one of your co-hosts alongside Mank and Ujwal. And in today's conversation, I have the incredible pleasure of sitting down with Anubhav Dingo, who, as you'll hear in a couple of moments time, also goes by the name of Anu but more importantly also goes by the name of Doomsday Dingra. so there's definitely a story behind that one so stay tuned I want to create a bit of suspense (laughs) Um, but a little bit of context behind Anu he's been dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder otherwise known as OCD as well as anxiety for the better half of his teenage years and as he transitions into adulthood um, shedding light into what he likes to describe the saber-toothed tiger from within. Um, away from being a voice for mental health as well and his own struggles, Anu plays a pivotal role on our National Crisis Alliance as a support uh, crisis support worker, um, as well as an advocate for Anxiety Recovery Centre here in Victoria. There's plenty of gems and takeaways in this conversation, so I hope you guys enjoy and buckle up for the next 55 minutes. Mm.
1: psychologist, he yeah. um, he nicknamed me Doomsday Dingra because I yeah. always, always, even now actually I remind myself, oh this is the doomsday part of me talking, um, because I always think about the worst case scenario, that's just mm. how... My brain rolls. Mm. Um, initially, it's obviously when you're experiencing it and you don't realise you're doing it. You yeah. feel really scared because mm. the brain is always coming up with these worst case scenarios and like, what if that happens? And then mm. um, you know you mm. just go down a spiral of unwanted thoughts and it just leads you astray. Really,
0: mm. even even when we take it back a couple of steps, you know, you've you're of Indian Indian background. Yeah. Um, you 've come to Australia when you migrated when you were quite young before before you were ten and yeah nine, you know, nine
1: years old yeah there you go and and, <laughs> and
0: and settling in and and all those different challenges i don 't know if you want to maybe take it back a couple of steps you know yeah. that, I know there 's definitely a story before you even came to australia um, yeah. you know that, that stuck with you and, and you speak about it a lot i guess in in India yeah, before you came course. over.
1: So essentially, uh, obviously, I'm of Indian origin, but I'm an Australian citizen now. But um, so school has uh, my sort of journey with mental health started in back in year two. I remember it very clearly where I was um, traumatized at school by uh, my teacher in India where corporal pun I think that's what they call it, corporal punishment in <laughs> yeah. schools are uh, still, well, at that time, I'm not sure about now, uh, was quite strife. And I think um, the older generation of Australians uh, relate to that because in Australia, ages ago, that was allowed, but not in the recent past, thank God, um, because of the fact people realised that it you know, it creates that sense of trauma and it has long-lasting effects on mental health. And so um, I think, um, yeah, that's where it all started back in school in year two where um, for no rhyme or reason I was um, picked out out of a group and the whole class was mucking around. That's what, you know, children do. Um, But I was that shy little kid and I guess the teachers saw vulnerability there and an ease of threat and um, uh, took advantage of that. Um, I'm just mindful of triggering uh, listeners, so I won't really go into what happened, but essentially I was selected out and um, there was a bit of hitting there, physically, um, name calling and things like that, and it wasn't done you know in in a separate setting, even in a separate setting, for a child that 's traumatic, mm-hmm. but it was done in front of my peers so um, and completely that, at random completely at random right. uh, it was a random surprise test, right. and um, because the c- class was sort of mucking around, mm-hmm. um, she said, "Oh look, surprise test," and it was on a topic that we hadn 't even covered, and right. when I look back, it was something that we were we were going to touch on in year three. Of course, no one knew, um, mm. including myself. And I hadn't done anything. Look, my page right. was blank because I had no answers. I, I yeah. hadn't heard <laughs> yeah. that. Right. Um, so that was, she used that um, against me. And um, yeah, that was, that left me feeling, you know, shame, guilt, embarrassment in front of the whole class. And um, at that time, when I look back, it was, I didn't think it was that um, long-lasting. I didn't realise it would be that long-lasting. A, I'm a kid, um, mm. and my both my brother and dad went to that school and had spoken about corporal punishment in their yeah. education. So for me, right. I thought, okay, this is normal. Mm. Um, but I think it was, um, for me, it had... Um, just for some reason it had an underlying, you know, it mm. stuck with me. Mm. Um, but it didn't really come to surface till um, perhaps when I moved to Australia. But even then it wasn't really, I didn't really think much of it.
0: It's absolutely crazy to think, you know, in a in Western culture that that sort of stuff you'd be at, you know, like that's, that's frontline head news. Um, you know, people doing corporal punishment, especially teachers, like, they'll be getting sentencings um you know complete you know there would be the opposite end of that shame you know why as if you ever yeah. laid a hand and, and and you know when you look back at like you know asian culture it's like yeah. this is the method of putting you in line putting you in order i am the power authority
1: yeah and it's interesting you bring up authority because what that meant was um, i it, it's still you know authority figures um, not yeah police obviously but I don't do anything illegal, Mm. but even authority figures in the sense of, you know, um, family elders or, um, you know, colleagues and people at work or senior colleagues who are not necessarily my direct reports or uh, people I report to sort of bring up those feelings of shame, embarrassment, um, fear, um, which, when I look back now, and after years of therapy, I can link back to that um, that moment in primary school uh, right. back in India. So,
0: and and it's almost like this pent up, you know, trauma that's that's existed within you, especially especially growing up. And you know, when you when you talk about this idea of someone in authority as well, like I can imagine, you know, as you're coming to a new school when you migrated to yeah. Australia. You know, what was that kind of like, you know, this complete new system, being Mm. the school, complete new environment, complete Mm. new way of doing things. (laughs) And, you know, that that same idea transcends across this rules authority. How did you go about balancing that, you know, especially in your middle middle school years?
1: Yeah. No, I guess um, what was interesting about when I look back at primary school is, um, especially moving to Australia, it. I actually found it surprisingly um, a sense of relief that it was almost like, what, teachers don't hit you here? Mm. Um, And even the content of work, you know, India was very much very, um, didactic sense of learning you know teachers the teacher you listen to the teacher and you do as you're told I mean that was, there was a sense of that but it was more group learning learning with your peers project related so for me it was like oh my god so I don't have homework uh, <laughs> and I don't right. need to do an exam in year three that's you know um, so for me that was a sense of relief but I guess, like with any school, and when you come into middle of a cohort where they have established friendships from primary school, coming into the year year four, um, where there are those established um, uh, friendship groups. Um, that was challenging because you're a kid and you don't know. Like, I look back now and can say oh, people had established relationships and friendships, mm. but at the moment, like, why aren't people being friends with me? Um, a, and, mm. you know, it brings to light things like um, my name. Yeah, um, why am I the only one with this name? Yeah. Um, there were subtle things like that in primary yeah. school, but in regards to my mental health, I think that came about, more onto the surface um in year yeah. seven um, yeah. a start of high school where right. things start it wasn't serious it wasn't like oh my god but for me it felt uh like okay this is the real deal high school important you know you've been yeah. to primary school and and I guess being a perfectionist and again linking back to that trauma in high school I wanted to be that perfect student I wanted to be what I didn't want to Mm. um you know make a mistake or
0: I did was that not to be called out
1: yeah for for not to be called out in front of the you know the classroom and Mm. um I guess that was bubbling underneath, and mm. I said, "Okay, high school, this is important. I need to up my game," yeah. not realizing that <laughs> my own nature, even if yeah. I, if no one told me that, I would be, I would generally do that. But I just added that pressure, continuous right. amount that pressure. And <laughs> um, I remember distinctly, remember. Um, on an orientation, Year 7 orientation day, um, and the student coordinator talking about all these rules and detentions and yeah. yellow card and yeah. then the red card and then yeah. suspension, and I yeah. just had information overload. I just went into a panic. I remember right. at the, in the theatre, I didn't know what that feeling was. I was like, oh, my God, this world is, I have no hope. I'm yeah. not going to survive there's, high school. There's too
0: much going on
1: there's too yeah. much going on, and I remember coming home and having a conversation with my mum and she was like, "Well, this is what school is and um, not realizing that that sense of fear I had added onto myself subconsciously
0: yeah.
1: um, which then was the startings of my um, that 's when my mental health started to manifest yeah. in itself in anxiety. Yeah panic, uh, but more prominently, OCD, obsessive um, yeah. compulsive disorder. And I think OCD is a word that's thrown out um, in popular society. Um, you know, I'm a neat freak, I'm so OCD, but I want to reduce the, uh, you know, m- my goal is by saying that, you're minimising the people, people's experience who actually have OCD, who have Absolutely. been diagnosed with obsessive-compulsive disorder. Um, for me, at that time, it was being a student and it was not – the fear that was driving my obsessive-compulsive or uh, mm-hmm. obsessive thoughts were um, – you know, I didn't want to be called out in front of the teacher. I didn't want to be the bad student. And that, again, fed into my perfectionism, wanting to be perfect at everything. Um, some people who are perfectionists will have, you know, thought blocks so where they'll just take a step back. It's like if I can't do anything perfect, I won't do it at all. Whereas right. to me, it just went into overdrive where I was just putting this added pressure of doing everything correctly. Um and, you know, I distinctly remember, you know, I would check with my teachers multiple times. So what was homework again today? Mm-hmm. Um, what was the homework at the end of the class? And, you know, the teacher would get frustrated and I was like, and but they realised that I was coming, you know, they didn't realise that I had OCD, but they also, yeah. I didn't realise I had OCD. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And they just thought that I was being a really good student. Um, yeah. And similarly, when I would take these analogies back to my mum and dad, they were just thinking, oh, my God, he's a really good student. He's so yeah. on top of everything, conscientious. Yeah, yeah. And But my fear was I wanted to have everything in my bag just in case I didn't miss the wrong textbook. So right. I would check the locker yeah. sometimes. Mm it started as 10 times and as my years grew it went to 50 60 70 times and i look back now and i can talk about it like this but there were those 70 times where i was <laughs> um, checking there were hell because every right. time i would shut the locker it was like but have i missed anything are we sure right. like and everybody gets these thoughts like have mm. i missed it have i checked it but mm. in ocd that cycle doesn't stop that right. doubt is everlasting and I, it would be to a point where I've checked my locker 70, 80 times and I've missed my bus. Mm. Um, and I've had to sort of say to my parents, they, they were both working parents, that, well, oh, I missed my bus because of a class. And they just thought that I was a really conscientious student. Again, right. he stood back, he missed his bus. So I would be at school to 6 o'clock, you know, waiting for my parents to finish work and picking up from, um, from school.
0: Right. Do they ever, come. Did they ever did Sorry. they ever did they ever ask you know like were you just were you just sticking back at class or were you just sticking around or did you ever tell them that you know you were checking the locker you know 60 70 times or was there some sort of fear also there, there? was
1: a shame and guilt there um, Gotcha. and a lot of people with OCD um, don't tell that so my mm. parents didn't even knew that I was checking my right. teachers didn't knew I would be very strategic at school I wouldn't I wouldn't <laughs> check my lock in front of my peers it was a lot gotcha. of there was a lot of shame with that as well right. um that was at school and at the end of mm. the day you know it's, coming home was another kettle of fish you know mm. I would I would do my homework as any kid would do, but then I didn't have any free time because the next part of my evening after doing homework was eating dinner and then checking whether I've done my homework, checking whether I've got everything ready for my uniform tomorrow because if you miss a uniform, if you don't get that correctly, um, you get detention. And the yellow card's going to come out as well. Exactly. So that fear was driving that behavior. So when I look back in some ways, it was very tumultuous school after school was hell. Um, During Mm. school, I was almost Mm. in a way relaxed because it was like, okay, my first class, nothing's happened. And all this fear, all the Mm. doomsday stuff that I (laughs) had created within my mind hasn't happened. But then comes end of day. And that just went through that. So, if you take that, that's just an in, insight into one day that was having, happening all through year seven, all through year eight, all through year nine. Start of holidays, perfect. I'm this happy kid, you know, excited, like any other kid. Every who doesn't want end of school, but mm. one week into the holidays, I've still got one week left. And here, here comes that doomsday right. part of me coming, right. and he comes like a saber toothed tiger. Right. Um, he built the tooth tiger yeah, the, that prehistoric tiger who 's this mm. enormous giant um, that 's what I describe my thoughts back then as it was right. it felt very real, it felt like the tiger was in the room, and i 'm going to die because of the mm. tiger um and that checking you know did I get any homework some some holidays we wouldn't get any homework but I would check I'm like are you you sure you've not missed it um I would check through my diary tick everything my diary we used to have I used to triple check my diary every time I would check my diary and I would check my diary 50 60 times so 50 Mm. 60 times three I don't I'm not very good at mathematics. Yeah, yeah. That's a shitload amount of checking. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, do it very silently, very, mm. you know, look, look like I'm plodding around the house, mm. being really conscientious, open mm. my bag, looking at these books. Yeah. But it was tumultuous, it was right. exhausting, it was traumatic. Those th- that in itself was re-traumatizing really for me, living with that OCD, living with that right. shame of not being able to share this with anyone. Mm -hmm. And if I did, it felt like, yeah, everybody goes through that. But I could sense within me that there was, that there's something not quite right. Um,
0: And even, you know, when you're like 13 and 14 and, you know, you're stuck with these thoughts constantly. Like I imagine from the moment you wake up, even, even the little things like packing your bag for school, to the moment you're, you know, packing your bag to go back home. Like it's there continuously reminding you. And,
1: exactly. And,
0: and, and for, every, for every obsession there's a compulsion. And, and exactly. For you, and for you the obsession was definitely making sure, you know, this authority, you know, yeah. that they were satisfied, that they weren't there barking at you. There were no yellow cards. There was no detention. And,
1: and, and every little – look, I'm human. Um, yeah. Everyone's human and yeah. you do slip up every now and then and every now and then the teacher would, would – and to be honest, when I look back, the, those the, the teacher – getting um sort of wasn't that bad but that those incidents where the, te- the teachers have called you out in some way it mm-hmm. would feed into that behavior, those behaviors a lot more yeah so in the moment in that moment when the teachers called you out doesn't seem that big but yeah. when you're at home and those thoughts are loud you yeah. look at that experience and you go no I don't ever want that to happen either, so, gotcha. Gotcha. so it just feeds you and feeds you and feeds you and or feeds the tiger. Exactly, because I, I was going
0: to say, like, was there ever this voice in your head which was just like, know you're, you're just being silly, like that's never going to happen. You know, if I, if I don't hand in my homework, I'm not going to be suspended or expelled. Like it's, you know, they're just going to mm-hmm. say, you know, just give it in tomorrow. Did that ever, ever kick in? in, in it, your
1: kicked, it kicked in, but it yeah. was the... I guess the cost of not doing and being called out for me right. was that's a outweighed lot Outweighed everything. Outweighed everything. So exactly. And by here, by this time, when your OCD and anxiety is so the the logical thoughts that right. did come into my mind, it's your primal, you know, evolutionary brain that's yeah. feeding all of that. It's your mm. amygdala. It's your uh, limbic system and your limbic system is so overactive. Limbic system for our listeners is like the part that it's a system of organs within your brain that have memory and emotion associated with it. So those memories of my childhood were feeding that and um, my frontal cortex wasn't able to analyse, okay, this logic is Logic is true. You know, you need to listen to that logic um, because those emotions that amygdala was so overactive that I didn't want that feeling. And actually, in when I was checking and when I had that feeling, like I actually have done homework. Those positives,
0: mm-hmm. it was
1: almost like a drug. Um, yeah. the, the those little bits of hit of feeling like oh, I'm actually done homework. I'm not going to get into trouble. So my brain was using that good feeling to check, go back into that diary um, mm. and I wanted to keep checking my diary because of those those really good feelings that I was yeah. getting. Yeah. Um, yeah, and right. those good, good feelings were feeding that tiger. <laughs> yeah,
0: because <laughs> now even I guess, you know, now in hindsight, you know that it's OCD and you know exactly, you know, you're able to connect the dots looking back you know, as, mm-hmm. as they say, but in, in that moment, how did you seek the help that, mm-hmm. you know, you finally got? Was that, was there sort of this turning point where you're just like, you know, this is getting out of control. I need it. I need to see someone, otherwise I'm going to lose, lose my head. Or was it, you know, your, your parents catching you, <laughs> checking your diary 50 times?
1: <laughs> Actually, it was surprising. My parents, Saw that, but they just thought, you know, this is a very again very conscientious student. But a turning point would was me. For me, was um, by this time by year nine, my uh, suicidal thoughts were were pretty much quite strong, um, right. and I like to describe it as the saber tooth tiger wanting to eat me. Um, yeah. because that's how it felt. Um, and I was like, well, if this, this is getting out of hand. The fact that I'm thinking about, and this is where the logic brain was sort of, you know, came in for a moment. Yeah. It's like <laughs> if going to school is, you know, going to make me kill myself, where have I actually come? What is mm. What has happened to me, mm. you know? Um, And I remember distinctly having a conversation with my mum actually and saying, look, and I was in tears because just a minute ago I was thinking of killing myself and here I am uh, talking to mum and saying, look, I need help. I don't care what that help looks like. I need to go to a doctor because... Mm. And by this time, they had known my pattern, especially in the middle of holidays where every student's still going, yeah, I've got one more week and I'm in turmoil. I'm running around the house like a headless hook. Um, I'm an emotional wreck. So by this time, they had known the pattern of what was happening. So they said, look, yeah, um, it doesn't hurt. We'll go to the doctor. And um, that's where that turning point started where I – and I'm – when I look back, I'm very lucky to have a very good GP because um, there are a lot of people out there who have GPs, but their GPs are not trained in mental health. You know, they've done basic or understand, but perhaps their referrals, because they obviously haven't gone and seek therapy with their referrals, they don't know (laughs) how those psychologists are. Um, So I was very lucky um, that I had um a good GP but therapy was hard as well right. I won't lie uh because that by then sorry
0: even, even before that you know like just talking to your mum about it how, how yeah. did that feel because you know I guess were you quite fortunate to have you know quite understanding parents
1: oh very very um very lucky to have understanding parents you know I think with anyone That support network around you, when you don't have that, these feelings become even more powerful. And sadly, um, that saber-toothed tiger does eat people. Um, But it becomes a man-eating tiger. Uh, But now for me, I was very lucky to have immediate supports around me. Um, Mm -hmm. And if mum and dad hadn't um, been supportive, I probably would have still, because I knew there was something I probably would have gone to um, a counsellor at school, for example, right. um, because that is an option at school. Right. Yep. Um, so, and I had gone to the counsellor before, but it was more around mundane things like bullying right. and things like that. I never really brought this up with a school counsellor. So, mm. um, uh, yes, so yeah. having those supportive parents meant oh, the, the world. Um, Be-
0: because I know it definitely... At least for myself, you know, I, I'm gr- I've grown up in an Indian household. I have you know South Asian parents, and mm. with that, there's definitely certain ideologies that exist. There's there's certain expectations. There's certain um, mm. you know there's certain perceptions of how a son and, and daughter should be.
1: Yeah, and,
0: and and for me personally, I've always struggled opening up in in that sense because it's it's not that they don't care; it's that. They definitely care. They definitely love me. There's sometimes just, not just with my parents, but just with a lot of family, friends and things yeah. like that. It's it, it's hard. It's hard sometimes in a South Asian household. So I'm I'm incredibly happy to hear, you know, with you that you had these parents that were definitely very understanding and, and very accepting that these things happen and there's support there for you.
1: No, 100%. And, look, I won't lie, that initial conversation I did not um, – a lot of doubts but coming mm-hmm. from a south asian culture where when you look at things that are happening back in the home country where to a certain degree mental health is becoming more recognized but back then it was still there was still stigma around that you know exactly. um uh, stigma or underlying stigma like oh no you're not that bad um mm-hmm. you're not that crazy you're not crazy um so i didn't want to feel dismissed so i was I was getting a sense of, okay, this is going to be a tough conversation, um, but I just need to give it a go. Um, If my parents are like that, yeah, if my parents are like that, they're like that, Um, but I want to, I need the help because, hey, my life is at risk. That tiger wants to eat me. Um, So... Before then, the tiger was just growing. Like I said, it was just—I mm. um, was still feeling yeah. that tiger. Mm. Um, so you know, it was—it yeah. was a tough, tough experience.
0: And and so you ended up, you know, seeking and and seeing someone about this. What was that like? Because I know definitely. I remember when we were speaking actually a couple yeah. of weeks ago, and and you were mentioning to me. You know, there was someone you knew that had seen a psychologist, I think, ninety-six times or, or ninety-seven yeah. times, some some ridiculous amount of times, but they didn't give up at all. Like they continued trying to see people, knowing that it's not me, it's just that connection, that energy that I need
1: with someone yeah, to open exactly. up. Exactly. And look, those incidents of 96th or 97th (laughs) are few and far between luckily, touch wood, all those things. But no, I did know of someone who had tried to seek therapy, but it took Mm. various... um, Because therapy, it's not like a physical sort of health where you go to a surgeon and he goes, like, this is what we need to do. I'm the best surgeon because I've done these surgeries Mm -hmm. 50,000 times. You could have a psychologist who's the best psychologist in the area that you want to see, but in order to be able to work on yourself, the biggest um, outcome or biggest predictor of a good outcome is that therapeutic relationship. Exactly. and that just goes to show at a humanistic level and sometimes counsellors creates a better experience for therapy than a psychologist would but because just for that fact that they have that better therapeutic connection with them because if you think about it there's no x-ray you know in physical health a doctor can do a blood test or a CAT scan or CT scan and go okay this is what is happening. But with mm-hmm. mental health, we are sort of our own x ray. We are our own blood test. There's no blood test right. out there. So, unless mm-hmm. we feel ready to share our deepest, darkest demons with someone, mm-hmm. they won't know exactly what's going on with them. So, mm-hmm. you need to be, put, and that's hard, being vulnerable with a stranger, mm-hmm. being able to share your deepest, darkest demons, which create that sense of shame that you don't want to share with anyone. In order to share that with someone, it takes a, it takes strength, resilience, mm. but it also means that the therapist is creating that safe space for you right. to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some people who are naturally good at that. Other people struggle with that, not for no fault of their own. And, look, someone that I might connect with, you might go, what are you talking about? That person <laughs> was really bad. Yeah. Um, for no reason. It's just that exactly. connection's not there. Right. So, um I was very lucky to, A, have a good GP, B, have a really good psychologist. But even before I saw a psychologist, it was having a really good uh, child psychiatrist that my parents t- took me to. Yeah. Um, and what actually turned out was there was a medical imbalance. There was a chemical right. imbalance that needed mm. to be sort of um, looked at um, in order for me to even consider therapy.
0: Right. And and so how, how was that, you know, obviously, you know, you've, you've taken that big, I guess not a big leap, but, you, you know, you've taken that step forward and, you know, I, I need the help, that all the help that I can get. Mm. You're finally sitting down with someone yeah. and, you know, they might tell you it's going to be a very tough journey for you. These, this mm. is going to take a number of sessions. And they also tell you I'm here just to facilitate this interaction you know yourself the best. And so yeah. this is going to be a lot of you introspecting and understanding, you know, mm-hmm. what it was when you were much more younger. That's, mm-hmm. you know, where, where this, you know, this little cub has turned into a tiger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that like? You know, just talking about that, you know, your first session. And, you know, even if you want to touch on, I know there's this thing called ACT that, you yeah. know, you're quite big on and um, for the listeners, that's Acceptance Commitment Therapy. Yeah. yeah, what was that like?
1: So I won't lie. Therapy is not a walk in the park. It's always a well. If a good therapist will, you will question your what your own doing for, because yeah. <laughs> you've just learnt it over the years to do it one way. And when someone challenges that and goes, "But what about this way?" And when you challenge yourself, it it, it hits hard um, because you're tackling those deep dark secrets, and it's yeah. not going to be easy talking about those so for me I was lucky my psychologist said look I don't have a magic wand and he was open and honest and I thank him for that even today Um, because I realized going into therapy that there was no magic pill I need to put in that work because in some way or the other not to put myself down circumstances have led me to this path so um, that wasn't easy but I think the turning point for me in terms of recovery was acceptance and commitment therapy where um, because of my trauma that connected with me and it wasn't acceptance commitment therapy on its own. It was linked with CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. They went hand in hand. Um, And acceptance came first that, okay, the trauma happened. It was acknowledging that. It wasn't about dismissing my trauma. It wasn't about forgiving what's happened or forgetting what's happened. It was like, okay, this has happened. Um, And knowing that and someone acknowledging that allowed me to then challenge my thoughts and Mm. allowed me to then go, okay, that happened. And that's why I'm doing this now. So maybe I need to just be aware of where these current patterns stem back to and, um. And that was a big turning point. And I actually took. Uh, when I look back, I'm very proud of myself because mm. b- by this, I had actually been. Uh, by Medicare, you get ten sessions per year, so I had two mm. years of therapy, and each time CBT. And I, the third time, so for the next thirty, next ten sessions, so the my, it's the start of my 30, 30 sessions of therapy, mm. I went to my psychologist and said, look. The CBT is working great. When I'm in therapy with you, I'm able to challenge those and things like that. Yeah. But it's been six months now since I've seen you, and every time I'm out of therapy, I find myself back. It's like I'm having Panadol, but the pain, the underlying pain doesn't go away. Right. And that that conversation allowed him to change his tactics like okay there might be something deeper going on let's Hmm. change let me change my strategy are you willing to change that strategy with me and by then I was like yeah I'm happy with anything yeah um and that was a huge turning point and that led me to mindfulness and that led me to acceptance and what are my values at what are my schemas so yeah where is this pattern originating from? It's, you know, that's when my, I was, now I was starting to feed my logical mm. brain and starve mm. that saber-tooth tiger.
0: Gotcha. Um, and, and, and this idea of, I guess, acceptance and commitment, even, you know, I imagine there's, you know, a strong understanding of being linked to your values and, yeah. and pursuing, pursuing actions that are in line with your values. You know, what, what was that like? I guess, you know, perhaps if you also want to speak to it, you know, you figuring out your identity at, yeah. at that stage in your life and yeah. connecting, connecting that, those actions with those values in that yeah. Sense, yeah, yeah. you know?
1: Um, my identity, I'm a, I'm a gay man and, um, Again, having that conversation with my family, I could have another hour conversation on what that was like. But (laughs) I'm lucky, lucky, very lucky that I have supportive parents and that conversation went down well. Um, But I also was prepared for the worst-case scenario because as my nickname, as my psychologist calls me, I'm (laughs) Doomsday Dingra. And I was very well prepared for the worst-case scenario. But lucky enough, my parents were very supportive. They loved me. I still love them. Touch wood um but it allowed me to look at my values it uh it allowed me to say what's important to me um I want to be I want to help people I want to uh you know that was my underlying goal and then I looked back at what I was doing I was like am I helping people and Mm -hmm. I'm like yes well I'm working to help people um what are my values I'm a perfectionist okay do Has that perfectionist gone too far where it's limiting my ability to be kind to myself before being kind to others? So um, that was an interesting analysis that took. I'm talking as if it took a day, no. Um, you know, the, these conversations that you have within yourself, it's not just conversation, it's journaling, it's completing homework that the psychologist gives you, which is very easily not done. Um, but my psychologist yeah. was like, you're, you're, I'm very lucky to have a client who's very good at doing homework. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I guess that led me to really good, you know, recovery, really good... Um, and. To be honest, it wasn't a linear thing. There were good days. There were bad days. You know, life, I, I like describing life and mental health like ocean. Some days yeah. are going to be stormier. Some days are going to be calm. Um, but it's about being prepared for that stormy weather, and I now had a surfboard or I had a lifeboat where I could mm. sit in when mm. the weather is stormy. Uh, mm. Whereas previously, those big storms, I would drown. I would be like, "Oh shit! Yeah. There's a massive yeah. wave coming towards me." <laughs> yeah. I have not, and then before you know it, you're in the, you're in the middle of a whirlpool or a rip mm. that's taking you in the middle of the sea, and you can't mm. even see the shoreline. You're like, "Oh my god, I'm in no man's land." Yeah. Um, but now ha- I had that sense of control I still right. it was still storm weather there was still yeah. big waves there was <laughs> yeah. seasickness I was throwing <laughs> up but yeah I didn't I didn't go into a whirlpool I still mm. had con- that sense of control and when that right. control is taken away from you which was not there before you feel a lot worse
0: mm. I, I did um I did promise the listeners that we'll be getting analogies and we, <laughs> we It took a while. Have, <laughs> there's been no shortage of analogies in the last couple of minutes there.
1: <laughs> um, uh, no, yeah. And, yeah. and that, that leads very nicely into what helps me even now, it's mindfulness. Mm, exactly. Um, it helps me ride the waves. I don't get Drowned. I don't drown. Um, mm. I still have those moments, but I acknowledge right. that that's happening.
0: Right.
1: Um, there's a sense of letting go. Um, letting go and acceptance is a big part of mindfulness. Right. Um, and a great analogy is: you need to breathe out in order to take a breath. Breath in. I mm. was holding that accent. breath. Yeah, I was hold, clinging on to ideas. And not letting go. What that meant was I was unknowingly feeding the saber-tooth tiger. But what I had to do was letting go meant Mm -hmm. I could now, in a positive way, starve the saber-tooth tiger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that saber saber-toothed tiger still exists, but it's more like a kitten now. It's sort of like mm-hmm. a small kitten that just runs around the house like a headless shook every now and then. Yeah. It comes up and <laughs> goes, what are you doing? And I'm like, go, get away, you know, yeah. you're annoying little shit, you know, go away. <laughs> yeah. um, and those right. thoughts still happen, but I'm able to, I have I have control over them now. I mm-hmm. control them, but previously they controlled me. Mm-hmm. Um which which is a good thing I think. I, often people go into therapy thinking that my thoughts are going to completely go away. Absolutely. But that's like saying I don't want my brain to think. That's what the mm-hmm. brain is designed to do. You know it's right. It's doing its job, which is great. Um, but um,
0: that's actually a really interesting point because it's meditation isn't, you know, meditation mindfulness, I guess, isn't about creating, in, in a sense it is, but in a way it's not about like, com, like creating a blank canvas. You should have no thoughts because that's not how we're designed to think. And it actually, this reminded me of, you know, when I sat down um, with another guest, so Stefano Gunawan, who came on and he, he brought up this term called uh, Anisha, and Anisha oh. is this Sanskrit word, which is linked to Buddhism as well, which is oh. this idea that everything is temporary. There's imp- yes, there's impermanence oh. in everything. And is is that something that you know you oh. keep reminding you? <laughs> yes, yeah. I can see you're excited.
1: <laughs> I'm so excited, and that again, um, the Buddhist culture really resonates with me. And I went to Bhutan and Tibet, walking oh, through right. some monasteries, <laughs> and I did not know that. Um. And that that's why mindfulness really connects with me. I didn't realize that mindfulness had Buddhist roots in it. It was actually mm-hmm. John Kabat-Zinn who's the founder of mindfulness, and he spent years in a in a in a in Buddhist monasteries looking at monks. And they're like, oh, well, they experience stress in their lives. It's not like they have that blank canvas. But what is it that they're doing? So he was instrumental in bringing some principles from Buddhism to mainstream yeah. medicine. And go. Right. And that's why a lot of people like it. It doesn't have any religious affiliations. You don't mm-hmm. have to be a Christian. You don't have to follow a Buddhist faith or a Hindu faith to follow this. And it's so widely accessible. Like if mm-hmm. you look back now, look at mindfulness. Now it's so widely used as a term, mm-hmm. uh, which is good. I think it's it needs to be. But mm-hmm. oh, letting go and the sense of temporariness. I had to realize that, you know, Mm -hmm. some of my thoughts, you know, thoughts still happen, but they will come and go. They'll be good, bad, and the ugly. It's about riding the storm, not just focusing on the bad. And by focusing Mm -hmm. it, you're unknowingly just, then those thoughts exist. Mm -hmm. You don't notice then the good and the neutral ones. So
0: there's like a, there's like a sense of um, like enlightenment when you understand that when you are going through, you know, perhaps not the best situation, a shit situation, a situation is what yeah. they call it as well, yeah. like, that these two will pass. Um yes. and, and it's just a matter of observing it. And in the moment you kind of get into this fight or flight mode, you know, will yeah. this actually pass? And, and that does happen. I know I've, I've certainly been there and I can hear through your story. You've definitely been there as well. Um, is there is there something in particular, you know, when you do mindfulness that, you remind yourself? Is is it that impermanence piece?
1: Um, what I do, a, it's impermanence, but I also, um, I like looking at it from a scientific point of view as well. Gotcha. Yeah. And that helps my, feed my logical brain. And A fight or flight response is emotional. You feel it, Mm. but it's also a biological response. Your body is preparing for that saber-to-tiger to to run for you. Right. Um, But biologically, your body cannot sustain that level of fight or flight response for a long time. So after Mm. a while, your the stress, uh, the cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone will eventually taper off. Mm. Um, So knowing that helps me deal with the impermanence and go, look, this too shall pass. You know, it seems more, you know, that saying it just sounds like, okay, people are saying that. But when I look at it scientifically, it makes sense. It goes, okay, well... The the adrenal gland cannot release that cortisol forever. You know, it releases it in bursts Mm. and sometimes in big bursts to prepare Mm. you for that, but it won't just keep releasing it every now and then. Um and for some people that threshold is low so i you know even now i have a very small startled response so if someone was yeah. to walk into this room now i'd be like oh, who's <laughs> that but then i realize oh, okay i'm just in my own home obviously mm-hmm. you know people are going to walk in and out so yeah
0: yeah now that's actually very fascinating you bring that up because even even when we think of ocd it's it's this idea of there's low serotonin like when we think of the neurochemistry and i know we were just talking about a moment ago about you know the the gut brain the gut brain axes and and that you know that serotonin that 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 level of you know elatedness and happiness um, there's, there's actually a lot that's you know and i guess going back a back a moment because you know i'm not too sure if if it was in your situation as well but they they speak that you know it's a combination of SSRIs, you know, like yeah. yeah, as as well as talk therapy, that yeah. you know that really helps. So what you know, I guess yeah, what was that like for you?
1: You know, um, so SSRI essentially for um for listeners is a ser- selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So what it does yeah. is, um, it releases a molecule with which allows the serotonin, whatever there is in in the in the body to stay in the neural synapses for longer, which means that it has time to connect onto the relevant pathways to then create those feelings of serotonin being in the body. Um, So that allow, for some scientific reason, the SSRIs are used for depression, but for some reason it works for OCD too because of that imbalance. Um, And for me it was... Um, it was a combination that, um, the med isn't allowed to dial down some volumes on those thoughts because there was a biological imbalance and allowed me to look at my thoughts from a challenging point of view because mm. if your thoughts if your emotional brain is overactive
0: mm.
1: you can do whatever you want that logical brain is switched off so your, yeah. your therapy your family could be saying, but have you looked at the logical side and you've got yeah i know that, I yeah. that. my <laughs> brain is not allowing me to do that yeah So that allowed me and appreciate for some people medication is not an option, but for me, it was the combination It wasn't medication alone. And it was also not therapy on its own. It was both. Um, One allowed me to do the other without the other, each other, I would not have been able to be where I am today. Oh. Exactly.
0: I know I have to let you go soon, but there's definitely you know something I definitely do want to explore is you know now you spend your time and actually after this call you're going to be going off to work and yeah um, you do you do a lot of great work on you know the national crisis lines that you work on yeah you know one how is that you know you know sort of exploring that from the other end
1: mm. and
0: and two you know how. How has it been, sort of, you know, listening to other people's stories? Because you know, inevitably, you are listening to other people opening up to you. And, mm. You know, there's this idea of having this emotional tank. Because you know, I know when I when I mm. you know check in with mates. Um, you know, Mayan Ujwal, who we had this last episode with, uh, quite a mm. few weeks back on "Are You Okay?" This idea of checking on others, it it does. Not not drain you, but you know, there's definitely some sort of emotional tank that you need to listen.
1: Of course, yeah. sure. Um, no, great point. Um, look, I studied just to give everyone a background. I studied undergrad psychology, so I'm not. Mm-hmm. I haven't completed my formal, um, you know, honours and masters, and I'm not a clinical psychologist by any mm-hmm. means. But my value, as I talked about earlier in the in the piece, was wanting to help others and having mental health is very close to me because I've experienced it and I want to be able to give back to the community um, you know because mental health even in Australia where we are a long way there's still a sense of stigma around that Um, you know you look at the trade industry uh, mates in construction and things like that so there's still a lot of stoicism I think is the word um, within the society and I want to reduce those barriers um, and uh, cut down those chains that, you know, it's not okay to get help because uh, you're weak if you're getting help. But I think it's the strength, most strongest thing anyone can do. It takes a lot of courage, um, resilience to be able to show vulnerability and open up to someone. So I think it takes a lot more courage. Um and just looking at the suicide rates, it's a lot higher within males. So um, I think last year it was something along the lines of 3,046 suicides in 2019 um, and uh, a majority of them were. Uh, males I mean it it is still happens in females. it's very very strife, especially within the young community now um, that again will lead into a whole bottle of discussion around self-harm and you know teenagers and adolescents but uh, what help what keeps me going is that it stays true to my value um, and having that framework of studying psychology and when you work on these lines, there's a lot of support given to you which Um, allows me to have that emotional tank, the supervision. Um, And it's not like now that I'm I'm feeling better, it's not that I'm not seeing a psychologist. I still keep my, um, you know, I may not be seeing him once a week or once in two weeks. I see him probably once in two months now, but I still like to check in. Um, and that helps me give back. That helps me, but also I'm a founder of the mindfulness, or co-founder of the mindfulness group at the Anxiety Recovery Centre um, here in Victoria. And now, given COVID nineteen, you know, it's <laughs> it's running over Zoom for one hour every Friday. It's called Mindful Moments, and I think that group in itself has evolved um it used to get one person and then back when it was face to face it then grew to 12 people um with obviously covid that that number has declined because we're not operating face to face but mm. i remember at the start of the pandemic there was one or two but now you know last week we had the max eight people virtually just to you know in a virtual situation and we had eight out of eight people who signed up joined so um I really like how I wanted to create a community around mindfulness because I learned it in therapy, uh, but when you're out of therapy, um, you sort of left it on your own devices to do mindfulness and mm-hmm. creating that sense of community, that weekly check-in, Um, in a safe space where there's no experts there we're just discussing our challenges and going look I struggle with this I struggle with that what can we do reinforcing the values of mindfulness because at the Mm. end of the the day the ultimate goal of mindfulness is to live mindfully so there's formal practices of mindfulness where you sit down and meditate and things like that but sometimes what I really connect with connect with is the informal practice is the things like I'm going to have a cup of coffee but I'm going to really have my coffee because often what mm-hmm. happens is your brain, <laughs> while having that cup of coffee, thinking, okay, I need to do that next. I've Emails. Got this, this, uh, yeah. <laughs> To-do <laughs> lists. <laughs> To-do lists. <laughs> a whole smorgasbord. And I, I think everyone, yeah. regardless of mental health or not, can relate yeah. to that. Yeah. So the informal practice allows me to go, okay, I've got a five-minute break. I'm having my cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go out into the sun for five minutes, put a timer mm-hmm. in my phone, and not think about anything else.
0: Yeah. Um, I love that. I really and it's love those
1: that. five minutes, you know, and we're so hard on ourselves. Oh, my God, I mm. didn't do my meditation today. But you did the five minutes of informal practice, being kind mm. to yourself, self-compassion. You know, we are our own worst critics. We wouldn't talk to anyone else the way we would talk to ourselves. Mm. Um, we wouldn't talk to our best friend um, the way we mm. would talk to ourselves, you know. so Definitely true. Um, and that kindness starts with myself. Um, and, again, linking back to acceptance, commitment therapy, and all of that, you know, it all starts within it. I can't help myself. How can I help others? Mm-hmm. That's, my, that's my goal. So, I love that.
0: There's there's not much I can add to that. That was very poetic. <laughs> um, and and we do have to say thanks to Nick. Yeah. Nick Sachdev has put us in touch. Oh, of
1: course. <laughs> and yeah, Nick Sachdev, He's been a... Um, family friend um, since and his family have been family friends since Mm. you know um, we moved to Australia pretty much and even when we were considering Australia as a destination we came Mm. and you know spend time with them so no um, definitely.
0: For the the listeners that are listening um, Anu and I have actually never met in person so we we actually got got put in touch through a group chat uh, through Nick so you know, there's, I think there's a bigger message out there, you know, during lockdown, you can definitely meet um, of course. plenty of people, definitely stay connected. I think that's like, we're, we're definitely, I think we definitely have to celebrate after lockdown. You oh, know, us three.
1: <laughs> yes. And if you are struggling to connect with other people, you know, Anxiety Recovery Centre has a lot of free support groups, virtual groups that you can register for free and you know talk about these you know connect with other people who are experiencing what you're experiencing so I definitely you know I know it helped me back in the day and um I'm sure other people will relate to that as well so yeah. I'll send you those details Sunny. whenever you need that and um yeah uh
0: cool well without further ado thank you for coming on man it, it was a no pleasure. worries um, this is Sunny signing off
1: Thank you, Sunny. This is Anu signing off over in and out.
0: And boom, uh, just like that, we're at the end of this episode with Anubav. He is an incredibly inspiring individual who has come so far in his own recovery but as well as his advocacy uh, in raising awareness for mental health. As promised, uh, all these details are below. I uh, will put them in the show notes below, uh, his Instagram handle, um, as well as some information about the Anxiety Recovery Center here in Victoria. As for next week, uh, we'll actually be taking a break uh, from the mic. So Ujwal, Mank and myself uh, will be taking a break uh, up until mid-January. So we want to wish you guys all a happy summer and a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And there's going to be some exciting times, especially for those Victorians, uh, getting out uh, out and about and, and seeing family and friends. So have a wonderful time. Um, we certainly will be having a wonderful time as well. But until then, uh, stay tuned. We'll still be posting on our Instagram and doing other little bits and pieces. And we have an incredible lineup uh, to kickstart us in mid-January, I would say. Um, so until then, stay safe and stay well. And see you guys on the flip side.